True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The gunshot explodes through the quiet of the night. The woman watches in shock as her husband's knees give way and he falls to the ground. Throughout the next several years, that moment will be retold several times in many different ways. But the truth may have only existed in that single second, and every retelling after that will be coloured by a myriad of other narratives. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is Episode 71, The Murder of Ralph Krebs. This episode is sponsored by Shattered, a new release thriller movie that you're not going to be able to look away from. When wealthy recent divorcee Chris meets the dazzling sky in a seemingly chance encounter in the local mall, the two feel instant chemistry. But after Chris is injured by a would-be car thief, Sky moves in to take care of him, and her roommate turns up dead, Chris has some serious questions for his new love. Unfortunately, he's not going to like the answer, which is that Skye is not who she claims to be, and she's certainly not interested in a happily ever after with Chris. Chris is soon a prisoner in his own home, as Skye and her accomplices use any means necessary to get the information they want out of him. When Chris's ex-wife Jamie and daughter Willow arrive at the house, All three are faced with a stark choice, escape or die. Shattered, starring Cameron Monaghan, Lily Kruch and John Malkovich, releases at cinemas nationwide today, the 28th of January, and I definitely know what I'm doing this weekend. And I've got tickets to give away. One lucky True Crime South Africa listener will be watching Shattered for free along with one of their friends. Check out our social media after the release of this episode to enter the giveaway. The winner will be announced in next week's episode. A huge thank you to Shattered for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Kathleen Fester and Elizabeth Sterling for your support on Patreon, as well as Ilka Zenskirali and Tia Salani Baloy for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, 
and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. As a side note, if you listen on Spotify, that platform now has its own rating system, which is super cool, and I'd appreciate any star reviews on there. Today's episode takes us back to the late 1980s. I enjoy occasionally going back to these older cases, because I think they've got a lot to teach us about how much has changed in the world of true crime, and often how much has stayed the same. This episode involves a female perpetrator of intimate partner violence, and what I found so interesting about this case was how three different books I looked at, all written by knowledgeable and well-respected authors, all gave pretty different narratives and even specific details around the crime. I'd expect that's because it's a relatively old case, but at least one of these authors actually testified at the trial, so I would certainly put more weight on the testimony of a person who'd seen first-hand evidence. As we go through the details of this crime, I'll present the different versions to you, tell you where they came from, and then let you decide for yourself what you feel happened. Of course, a court decision has been made in this case, so there's also the legal view of what the judge believed happened to consider. But as we know, what happens in a court is more about what you can prove than what actually happened. In researching this case, I used the book Steeped in Blood by David Klatzow, Fatal Females by Mickey Pistorius, and Famous South African Crimes by Rob Marsh. This case had a different twist to it that would titillate the public and cause the focus to shift from law and order to more of a soap opera-like story involving sex workers, possible domestic violence, and the weight of money that so often drags relationships down. So let's get into episode 71, The Murder of Ralph Krebs. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The woman who would eventually become Maria Krebs had been married before she met Ralph. Her first marriage lasted just three years, and she had one child with her first husband. She'd remained single for seven years until she met German national Ralph. Ralph had, at the time, been in the process of divorcing his first wife. Although the details of finances would later be disputed, it's alleged that Maria entered into the marriage with the largest bulk of wealth. Ralph had a good job at the time, but his monthly income allegedly only added to a pot that was already very well stocked by Maria. Maria was eight months pregnant with Ralph's baby before the couple were able to marry once Ralph's divorce was finalised. For the most part, from the outside, the Krebs' marriage and family life seemed ideal. They lived in a beautiful house in Bedford View, 
and went on to have another child when their first was two. Their friends said both parties seemed happy. But I feel like this is always what people say after something like this happens. So external views of relationships seem to mean very little. The 21st of October was Ralph Krebs birthday. But before the couple could get to any celebrations, they had an entire day to get through. Ralph had been at work in the morning and Maria spent the day shopping and then collected her children from school. When she arrived at home, she says that Ralph was there and they got into an argument because she was supposed to have met him at an attorney's office earlier in the day to sign paperwork for a new house they were buying and she'd allegedly forgotten. Maria said she'd apologised as it had completely slipped her mind and Ralph had said that they would reschedule. The family then drove out to the new house, took some photographs and video footage for Ralph to send to his family in Germany, and then returned home, bathed and changed, and went out to dinner to celebrate Ralph's birthday. When they returned from dinner, Maria put their five-year-old and three-year-old children to bed, and it's at this point in the evening that things start to go a little awry. The tension simmering under the surface of the Krebs marriage had a clear source, and this also makes me think that perhaps Maria not going to sign the bond documents earlier that day had more to do with her actually not wanting to buy another property with her husband than her having forgotten. What those around the Krebs didn't yet know was that a week before Ralph's birthday, Maria had discovered he'd been unfaithful to her. The way she discovered this had been, well, less than ideal, if there are levels of idealness to discovering your partner's infidelity. You see, Ralph had unfortunately contracted pubic lice during his affair, and although we're not sure whether he'd passed this on to his wife, she had discovered that he was infected. Pubic lice, commonly referred to as crabs, are very similar to the species of lice you find in your head hair, on your head, the hair on your head on your scalp. They're just smaller and, well, significantly nastier. Any mom with school-going children will tell you about the horrors of head lice, and pubic lice are just as contagious. In fact, you don't even have to have sexual intercourse with someone to catch pubic lice. You can catch it from sharing towels, bedding and clothes with an infected person. Pubic lice infestation is quite easily treated, but it does have to be done holistically, so everything that's come into contact with the infected person has to be sanitised. So Ralph had contracted pubic lice, and I'm guessing that either he'd already treated it, or Maria had contracted it too, and therefore wasn't concerned about it as she would later say that having put their children to bed, the couple had made love. Despite Ralph's infidelity, Maria says she had forgiven him a few days before, but she also alleges that it was at this point in the evening that Ralph started to talk about how sex was not the same as love, and that he would prove to her that he could have sex with other women and still love her.
Maria would say, that Ralph had dialed the number for Playmates Escort Agency in downtown Johannesburg and then told her what to say. But the receptionist that answered the call that came through to the agency at 10pm that night only mentioned that the woman on the phone had requested the services of one of their ladies. When the receptionist asked exactly what sort of services they were looking for, Maria Krebs allegedly said she was hoping to give her husband a birthday present. Now, from this point in the night, there are two different narratives. One comes from Maria Krebs, and the other comes from the 22-year-old sex worker calling herself Patricia, who was dropped off at their home in Bedford View that night. According to the young woman from Playmates Escort Agency, she was accompanied to the Krebs' house that night by her driver, George, who was tasked with ensuring that the ladies from the agency were entering safe situations. Besides the money to be paid to the sex worker, the client was also expected to pay the driver for dropping her off, and in so doing, the driver would get a good look at the prospective client and use his highly honed skills of intuition to decide whether the worker would be safe or not. And yes, if it's not clear, I am being sarcastic here, because these agencies really just provided these women with a false sense of security with this whole driver situation. Because one look at someone does not give you any idea about whether they're dangerous or not. And most of the time, they wouldn't even stick around to figure out if there was any dodgy stuff happening. So by the time a sex worker in the 80s found a phone to call their driver to come back in a dangerous situation, they could have already been raped or murdered. And many were and are. Regardless, the driver was paid by the clients, who in Patricia's version was Maria Krebs, and in Maria's version was her husband. Because according to Maria, she was still in bed after their lovemaking session with her husband, thinking that the call she just made to an escort agency was one of her husband's bad jokes, when a very young woman walked in the door of their bedroom and started to take her clothes off. According to Maria's version, she'd been terrified. Her husband had had a lot to drink, and sometimes, she said, when he drank, he became violent. She was unsure what he had in mind for this woman, and she didn't know how he would react if she refused to take part. According to Maria, Ralph told her that he wanted her and Patricia to be intimate, and then he would also be intimate with the woman, so that Maria could understand that sex had nothing to do with love. Maria says she'd recoiled and rushed to cover herself. She says Ralph had become enraged and tried to force her to engage with Patricia, but when she continued to resist, he'd simply begun to engage with the woman himself. Patricia's version was a little different, though. She said that Maria had invited her inside the house and led her to the bedroom, where she found a naked Ralph on the bed. She alleges that she and Maria had kissed and been otherwise intimate, and then she'd moved on to Ralph, with whom she proceeded to have intercourse. Maria does concede 
that when she next looked over at her husband, he'd been having intercourse with Patricia. At this point, both stories marry up, and both Patricia and Maria say that Maria had pulled a half-full bottle of wine out of an ice bucket standing nearby and smashed it over her husband's head. Ralph had become enraged and stormed out of the room, leaving Maria and Patricia behind. Patricia says that Maria had initially fled the room, chasing after her husband, but she then returned and taken a gun out of the bedside drawer, loading it with bullets. The woman said that Maria had told her she was going to kill her husband because he'd been having an affair. Then Patricia alleges that Maria turned, pointed the gun at her, and pulled the trigger three times. The gun just clicked, and Maria fled the room, leaving a terrified Patricia to quickly get dressed. She spotted a phone on the bedside table, she says, and telephoned her driver, telling him that she was going to be killed and he needed to collect her right away. Maria's retelling of events does not include her ever pointing the gun at Patricia. In fact, she does not claim to have retrieved the gun or loaded it at all. In her version, she says that after smashing the bottle over Ralph's head, they'd fled the room together, but Ralph had been chasing her, and he had been brandishing the gun. Maria says that she'd run into their bathroom and squeezed into their shower, which was made of Georgian wire glass. She'd hoped the glass would protect her from Ralph, and when he found her there, he had indeed struggled to get in, eventually resorting to using the gun to attempt to shatter the glass. It did not shatter, but there was visible damage to it, which would become important to Maria's version later. Maria says that when Ralph realised he was not going to break through, he'd left the room, perhaps to find another item to ram the glass with, but he had left the gun behind, she said. With Ralph out of the room, Maria says she'd emerged from her hiding place and grabbed the gun. According to her, she only wanted to remove the bullets so that the gun would be safe. She'd run into her bedroom, sat on the bed, and she tried to open the gun. She says at this point Patricia had run in, and on seeing her holding a gun, had screamed and run out. Patricia would flee from the Krebs' house at this point and hammer on the neighbour's door, begging them to phone police, because the neighbour lady was about to shoot her husband. The neighbours, bleary with sleep and completely shocked to find this young woman spinning this crazy tale at their front door about the couple next door, allowed the woman in and Patricia used their phone. Back at the Krebs' house, Maria says that after seeing Patricia, she'd left the bedroom, still holding the loaded gun. She was still naked at this point, but ran for the front door, she says, and when she neared it, she heard Ralph shout at her from the top of the stairs. She turned around and told him to stay where he was and not come any closer. Maria says that Ralph continued to advance, and she'd shot him. His legs crumpled beneath him, and he'd fallen the last few steps to the bottom level. By the time the neighbours heard the gunshot next door, Patricia's driver had already arrived, and she'd fled the scene. The neighbours heard knocking on their door, 
and looked outside to find a naked Maria Krebs on their doorstep. The woman was hysterical, they said, and they'd given her a dressing gown to cover herself. After Maria told them that her husband had been shot, the male neighbour accompanied her back to the house. There, he says, he found Ralph Krebs lying in the hallway with a gun beside him. He says Maria Krebs had walked past him while he stooped over Ralph and attempted to see if the man had a pulse. The next time he saw Maria, she'd exchanged his wife's dressing gown for her own and was on the phone to what sounded like a friend. The neighbour used another line to call an ambulance and then heard the Krebs' children calling from their rooms. Not wanting the children to emerge and see their father bleeding on the ground, the neighbour had gone to round up the children in one room and kept them occupied until he heard the ambulance siren outside. When he'd gone out to meet the ambulance, he noticed that the gun, which had been laying next to Ralph, was gone. When paramedics entered the home, Maria ended her telephone call, and shortly afterwards a friend of hers had arrived at the house. Although it was clear that Ralph was already dead, one paramedic hadn't wanted to immediately tell Maria that, and he'd instead approached her and told her that they were working on her husband. The paramedic would later testify that Maria had said, I hope the bastard dies. When police arrived moments later, though, the medic witnessed Maria wailing to police that she hadn't had a choice but to shoot him and she didn't mean to kill him. Maria was charged with murder and released on bail while awaiting trial. Ralph's family in Germany received the devastating news of his death and the utterly confusing explanation that somehow the seemingly happy family that had been portrayed to them through photographs and videos had degenerated into violence and murder. The press exploded with the story, and of course the fact that a man had lost his life seemed of little significance. Rather, the focus was on the sex worker angle. The case even became known as the three-in-a-bed murder. Patricia arrived at the police station with the owner of the agency the day after Ralph died. She gave her version of events, which, of course, presented a very different motive to what Maria was saying had happened. Maria Krebs instructed her defence attorney to proceed with the defence that she'd feared for her life, had been sexually and emotionally abused by her husband throughout their marriage, and his shooting had occurred as a combination of self-defence and automatic reaction. To support this defence, her attorney hired private forensic expert David Klatzow to examine the evidence and see if it supported the narrative they believed it told, that Maria, terrified by her husband's attack on her in the shower, had reacted out of fear for her own life when shooting him. Klatzow visited the scene and found the shower door badly damaged, as Maria had said. During the autopsy, the bullet that Maria had fired was found to have gone straight through Ralph's body and exited the other side. It was found inside his shirt. When Klatzow analysed the bullets under a microscope, he found microscopic pieces of glass on it. He determined that when Ralph had been hammering the glass with the gun, pieces of glass from the shower door had become lodged inside the barrel of the gun. When the bullets had been fired, 
It had moved through the barrel and picked up the pieces of glass, carrying them into and through Ralph's body and finally remaining on the bullet as it came to rest against his shirt. This direct evidence proved that Maria's version about the attack in the shower was true. When Patricia took the stand to testify, Klatzau says that the judge seemed fascinated by her testimony, not so much specifically around the murder, but more to do with her work, how she interacted with her clients, and the fact that she allegedly never took her high heels off. Ever. During a time in South Africa's history when even soft pornography was illegal, and there was great debate in the public space about whether this was fair, Patricia's testimony about the work she did riveted everyone, and she certainly seemed to spend far more time on the stand answering questions than was necessary to present her testimony about the actual events of the 21st of October 1987. After her testimony, Patricia became fair game for all the newspapers and magazines to interview, and it would be the controversial magazine Scope that would win the scoop. Scope had been launched in the 1960s and would continuously press the boundaries of what was allowed to be published under strict apartheid rule. They published naked photographs of women with stars over the relevant areas of their body to avoid the anti-pornography laws and often covered salacious crime stories. The magazine would become a place for journalists to publish what other publications frowned upon, and they knew they needed Patricia on their pages. Initially, Patricia was not keen for any media coverage, but she'd also left her job in the wake of the murder, realising just how dangerous sex work was, so she needed the money that Scope was offering. She would eventually be interviewed at her house, and agreed to photographs wearing a nurse's outfit her clients occasionally asked her to wear. Patricia would also later be interviewed on carte blanche, where she spoke of her regrets at having been present at the Krebs house that night, but also how it had caused her to change her life and escape from the sex industry. Reading the books about this case, it's quite interesting to see how the language around work in the sex industry has changed. Only Pistorius's book, published in 2004, uses the phrase sex worker to describe Patricia and doesn't attempt to demean her in any way. Both Steeped in Blood, published six years later in 2010, and Famous South African Crimes, published in the 1990s, use words like hooker and call girl to describe Patricia. And if I'm honest, None of these books really seem to grasp that Patricia was also a victim in this case. She was only 22 years old and suddenly found herself thrust into a violent argument that turned into a murder. The neighbour also testified at the trial, saying that Maria had seemed very frightened when she'd arrived at his home, naked and trembling. His further testimony about her having then seemingly quickly calmed down and spending so much time on the telephone with a friend while her husband lay dead in the hallway, as well as the paramedic's testimony about her saying she hoped Ralph would die, did seem damning, though. In many similar cases, prosecution may seek to present a monetary motive, 
in that a wife had wanted life insurance or to secure an inheritance from her husband as a result of his death. But in this case, they couldn't do this because the greatest part of the wealth in the marriage belonged to Maria. So instead, the states sought to prove that Maria had simply had enough of Ralph and didn't want to divorce him, so instead, she'd killed him. Maria had never spoken to anyone about any abuse in her marriage, but the sexual nature of some of this alleged abuse seemed to support the fact that she wouldn't necessarily speak about it publicly, her defence said. She was ashamed. Maria said she'd come to realise in her seven-year marriage to Ralph that he didn't really love her, and that he may well have only married her for her money. The trial would take two full years to conclude, and on the 10th of March 1989, Judge from Moorton retired to consider his verdict over the weekend. The verdict was a difficult one to predict. Maria had certainly committed the crime, but the question really was, what level of crime had been committed? On Monday, the 13th of March, 1989, Fumwitten announced that he was acquitting Maria of the murder of her husband. The announcement was met with gasps of surprise, but he quickly followed this up with the proclamation that he had, in fact, found her guilty of culpable homicide. In Fumwitten's opinion, the physical evidence that Ralph had indeed attempted to smash through the shower door to get to Maria proved that at least her claim of having been in fear of her husband on the night in question was true. By accepting this, he essentially completely discounted Patricia's version. In the sentencing phase, it's emerged that Maria had, a few years prior to her husband's death, been found guilty of possessing pornography. This fact had been withheld during the trial, as it may have been prejudicial to the judge's decision but it was presented by the states in aggravation of sentence. They said that this proved that Maria had sexual desires outside of the norm and that she may well have procured Patricia of her own accord and not after being forced by her husband, as she claimed. Maria's defence attorney told the judge that Maria had accepted the pornography charge on behalf of her husband, as if he'd been found guilty he may have been deported back to Germany. The judge's sentence was handed down to further gasps and a smattering of applause. He issued Maria with a 2,000 rand fine and a three-year prison sentence, which was suspended for five years. Maria immediately paid the fine and walked out of the court, a free woman. In the days and months that followed, Maria refused all requests from the media for an interview, but it wouldn't be the last time her name made headlines. Two months after she walked out of court, Maria called the police, asking them to arrest a man that was living with her. The man, she described as a boyfriend, had allegedly assaulted her and refused to leave her home. The man would speak with journalists and tell them that he had assaulted Maria but only in self-defence when she'd began to hit him, shouting that he was only after her for her money. The man had indeed been rather down on his luck when he'd met Maria and moved into her home. When the story hit the news, 
Another man came forward and said he'd started dating Maria just three days after Ralph's death. Maria disputed this, saying that the man making these claims was much too young for her anyway. In the years after the murder, Maria did everything she could to stay under the radar, and today, as far as I can see, her whereabouts are unknown to most. Although the battered woman defence has been accepted by South African courts in the past, it often requires some proof of extended violence against the accused in order to be successful. In Maria's case, she couldn't show that extended abuse had occurred, nor that Ralph had threatened her life on other occasions, and this is very likely the reason that the judge decided that the circumstances of that specific night warranted a culpable homicide conviction. A very possible scenario in this case would have been that Maria had, with forethought, arranged for the sex worker to come to the house and then hoped to use this as a reason as to why she'd lost it and killed her husband. If Patricia was telling the truth about Maria attempting to kill her too, then perhaps that could have been part of the plan. But one piece of physical evidence would help her to avoid this being proven by the state, the shower door and the glass inside the gun. Of course, this didn't mean she hadn't in fact arranged for Patricia to be there and attempted to kill her, but it did provide sufficient evidence that Ralph had been the aggressor in events that night. Cases in which a female perpetrator kills her partner and then blames them are always difficult for me to process. Because if the tables had been turned here and a man had been sitting in the defendant's seat and started to give evidence about his abusive wife, we very likely would immediately say that the man is just making an attempt at character assassination. We would defend the deceased woman without a doubt. So why do we find it easier to accept this from a woman? If a man did this, we would say, it doesn't matter what she did, you didn't have the right to kill her, you could have divorced her. I would say that. So why do we find it so hard to say the same thing to a woman? And I guess it comes down to circumstances. Now, please be assured, I'm not talking about cases where men clearly premeditate the killing of their wives or partners, nor when women do. Those are very different situations. But I do think it's interesting for us to consider how we would react if a man sat in court and said that he'd feared for his life and felt he had no other way out. Would a man be able to successfully use the battered woman defence? I would like to hope they could if the facts supported the claim, but I somehow think a defence attorney would have a very difficult time of it. Maria Krebs was clearly at one point in fear for her life that night, and I think this evidence alone supports the judge's decision as the right one. He may, after all, have just acquitted her across the board, but he did see some form of culpability. So I really think it was the most fair decision. Whether or not Ralph Krebs' family thinks so is quite another question. And what of his children? How did they feel growing up, knowing that their mother killed their father? 
it's unfortunate that the Krebs could not just move on from their clearly dysfunctional marriage without violence having to end it. But this is a cycle that continues to replay itself today in so many homes throughout the world. I do think that, despite the misgivings in this case, it is vital that we continue to support the victims of domestic violence, both female and male, so that they do feel like they have a way out that does not have to end in the death of either partner. Thank you for listening to episode 71, The Murder of Ralph Krebs. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.